Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Hello and welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5, featuring two veterans of the show and one doobie. I'm your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, what would you decorate your fuck suite with? Hmm. Uh. A two-liter Mountain Dew bottle full of lube. God damn it. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> I I feel like okay. one of these days I'm just gonna have to drink Baja Blast on air to to like complete the bit full circle. Yeah, uh, I've never had Mountain Dew okay. in my life. Really? I've not. No. Wow. Noted. I would fill mine with black roses and Jakar action figures. Oh. And possibly also copies of uh, Captain Blood starring Errol Flynn. And Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a that's a choice. <laughs> uh, look, have you ever seen Captain Blood? I have not, but Errol Flynn is a little bit of a creep. Yeah, a little bit of a creep. But the duel scene with him and Basil Rathbone is fucking awesome. Uh, that scene is fucking fantastic, and I will I, I will stand by that scene as being brilliant uh even though yes errol flynn creeper all right well tonight i don't think we have any creepers um no sorry we have morden yeah fuck uh <laughs> no yeah this episode's not not great there's there is some definitive creeper content in this episode so tonight we are going to be covering interludes and examinations which Okay, it's our lead up for War Without End. We're just, it's its the lead up. We're almost there, but we've got to get through this one first. We just have the standalone episode here before the storm. Jude, I think you've got this one. Take us away. All right. Interludes and Examinations, written yet again by JMS, directed by Jesus Trevino, uh, who I think last directed uh, Sick Transit Veer. Yeah. I think it was the last time we saw him. We begin with ominous narration from Ivanova, describing the sudden escalation from the shadows who have begun moving in the open, first against the non-aligned worlds. As she describes the chaos on the station this causes and the need for extra security, we see a totally reliable guy who definitely doesn't have a tattoo of Clark riding on the back of an eagle on his chest taking uh, a payoff from discount psychopath Ross in the form of a lipstick tube full of diamonds, which seems like a shitty bribe in the f- in a universe full of gem-bearing planets, but whatever. Uh, no worries, she says, upbeat. Everyone's handling it great as the camera cuts to a strung-out, bleary Franklin shooting up another stim. He then casually knocks over the, uh, the lamp like, fuck this lamp, but like, no rush, just... Eventually, fuck this lamp. Uh, more concerning to Ivanova is that no one has seen Kosh in a week, which is fine, I'm sure. 
her monologue transitions to Londo getting fitted for a new waistcoat, which looks, as best as I can tell, like every other waistcoat he has. He has errands for Veer. He wants Veer to rent a fuck suite and fill it with flowers for him and Adira, who is finally returning to the station. Ivanova's jinx-ass monologue returns in time to say that they should be fine as long as nothing else goes wrong. As we see Discount Ross take his jewels back off the dead security fascist, then return to his quarters where three shadow soldiers uncloak to like, I don't know, play Parcheesi? What does he do with them? I don't know. Uh, I had some ideas and then decided (laughs) I didn't really want to write them down because it was getting weird in my head. And I don't know, you think about it. And might might involve a two liter uh, Mountain Dew bottle full of lube. I, I mean, I'm just saying they look very spiky and I would rather not contemplate that. But what do three aliens and a discount Ross Geller do in an otherwise completely empty hotel room? <laughs> listen, listen, there's, there is a table and four chairs. Obviously, they're there for their Twilight Imperium game. <laughs> because that's what you rent a room for. So that nobody disturbs you for eight hours while you play Twilight Imperium. I've never played Twilight Imperium, but I didn't know you needed a two liter of lube for it. Uh, Sheridan is in his office talking to the Bakiri, Star Trek face, and the game, Neil Gaiman reference, ambassadors. The Bakiri apparently did a deal with the Shadows in the past and are shocked to discover that they are not special. And now they want help keeping themselves from getting raffle stomped. Sheridan is in full dad mode, lecturing them about the lectures of associated with mysterious aliens. He tries to broker a deal with the game, whose influence could bring other races in the area to the Brakiri's defense, but they will not draw attention to themselves without assurances that they can be protected. The Brakiri are up shit creek. At the CPK Roundtable of Alliance, or I don't know, whatever we're calling it now, Sheridan is burning the midnight oil trying to figure out the shadows, and Delenn comes to check on him. It's cute. Sheridan is confused and frustrated. He knows he needs to organize the League and as many others as possible, but he has no fucking clue how to do it. He feels like he's lying to them. He doesn't know if he can beat the Shadows. So Delenn says, well, dummy, then just give them a victory. As if that's like the easiest thing in the world. When he asks how, she says, I'm sure you'll think of something. Which is so helpful. (laughs) Which is super helpful. But it turns out that it is helpful. Because, in pondering why everyone is talking more and more like fucking Kosh, he realizes the solution. Sheridan tracks Kosh down and requests that the Vorlons join the fight. Kosh is like, well, fuck off. Uh, And Sheridan gets pissed, uh, which is super gratifying to finally see someone call Kosh on his enigmatic horse shit. He's not remotely interested in taking Kosh's shit today. In response to which, Kosh beats the living Christ out of him with telekinesis. It's like a full Vader force choke here. Yeah, it's like it's like if if Vader were just like casually abusive. He beats up Sheridan a little bit first, slaps him around, and then full on force chokes him up against a wall. It's if it weren't so bananas to see Kosh doing it, it would be a little bit like unsettling. But as it is, it's just like crazy. He tells Kosh up yours, which is a really satisfying moment, uh, and it kind of becomes clear how desperate Sheridan is. He doesn't think they'll survive without the Vorlon's help, and he flat out says, you can kill me now, but that's what it's going to take to make me go away, because I don't think we're going to survive without you. My own government wants to kill me, so fucking make up your melon. 
he continues to goad Kosh until finally Kosh relents and says, there is a price to pay. I will not be there when you go to Zaha Doom. Sheridan interprets this as Kosh being a butthead, uh, but we'll see what that means in the future. Back on the command deck, the shadows are attacking in Brakiri's space, and Delenn leads all the ambassadors in. We cut to the battle, and we see the Vorlons attack. They fuck up a bunch of the shadows, uh, and the, the ambassadors are visibly influenced and cheered. After the battle, as Sheridan goes to sleep, Morden breaks into Kosh's quarters, and his shadow buddies uncloak and go after Kosh. In his dreams, Sheridan is talking to his dad. Kosh dad tells Sheridan he was right and not to blame himself for what's happened. In flashes, we see snippets of Morden's face as lights flare. Dadkosh implies he knew that this attack would cost him his life and was afraid. When you've lived as long as I have, you sort of get used to it. Which is fucking stupid. Everybody's used to being alive. That's a nonsensical thing to say. But it's very much implied that Kosh is like fucking ancient, immortal, whatever. But it's still a stupid thing to say. He says he has to go, but as long as Sheridan is there, he'll always be there. At which point, a burst of light rings the station and runs down its length. And then Sheridan wakes up, shouting, Kosh, Kosh, uh, and realizes that it was Kosh in his dreams, not his dad. Morden steps over the carbonized remains of Kosh's encounter suit. In the morning, in Sheridan's office, Garibaldi says there's no evidence of who could have done it. Indeed, there's no evidence that Kosh is dead at all, since there's no body. To which Delenn says, nor will you find one. Uh, but Sheridan knows. The Vorlons, however, also know. They have asked to keep his death quiet while they send a replacement because they don't want to upset this tenuous alliance that Sheridan has assembled. Their final request is that they take his encounter suit and everything else of Kosh's and put it in his ship. Uh, meanwhile, we turn back to Londo in his fantasy land, he's remembering his last experience with Adira when Veer calls him to check on some final things for his sex romp room. On the way, he runs into Discount Ross Geller, who is deploying his full ominous by using a dimmer switch. <laughs> and a red... Uh... A red gel sheet. He's cranky with Londo for not waging war on, in his half of the universe. Londo tells him to fuck off, having finally cottoned on that he's a pawn to cause chaos. He's shockingly bold here. He's got some serious big tentacle energy in this scene. <laughs> but then he fucks up and says, there's nothing you can do to me that hasn't already been done. Excuse me. <laughs> to which, to which, Morton was like, back. <laughs> yeah. Discount Ross tells his shadow buddy not to kill him. And there are other ways, which is basically Discount Ross calling Londo's bluff in a big old way. Uh, Veer, meanwhile, is ordering a bunch of, a bunch of booze, like a fuck ton of booze, flowers, clothes, and lingerie. He sees Discount Ross Geller and tries to avoid him, but Ross confronts him. Veer remains cheerfully hostile as ever, though. Uh, but Discount Ross Geller is sneaky. He talks to the vendor and they're busted. In the waiting hall, Londo is waiting for Adira. When she doesn't appear, they go through the door in time to see a body being wheeled out. Adira is dead. Londo remembers threatening Rifa with poison and assumes Rifa has poisoned Adira in turn, which is 
fucking insane since he literally, like, the same day told Discount Ross Geller, there's nothing you can do to hurt me. And now Adira turns up dead. <laughs> like, the same day. It's not like a week later or a month later. It's the same fucking day. And now Adira's dead. And, like, home skillet doesn't put one and one together. Whatever. We see Discount Ross Geller paying the last passenger to come off the ship with the same diamonds that he paid off the <laughs> fascist security guard and then took him off his dead body. When someone brings him some news, presumably of the Vorlon attack, and then he goes and kills Vorlon. Later, Londo meets up with Discount Ross Geller, who tells him that Lord Rifa is pissed at him. Londo, like a fucking chump, buys this horse shit, hook, line, and sinker. He has decided that he will work with Discount Ross Geller again, but this time not for political game. It's for vengeance. He wants to protect his people and let the rest of the galaxy burn. I... God damn it, Londo. I can't even begin with this garbage. In our B is for Buttheads plot, uh, this is a recurring segment in which Franklin or Garibaldi or both are Buttheads in the B plot. Uh, over in MedLab, Franklin is creating a hostile work environment and possibly setting him up himself up for a workplace harassment suit uh, for Dr. Hobbs, who is clearly the more professional and more capable doctor. Uh, and she is not giving one inch to this drug-addled maniac who runs MedLab. He mansplains and tries to shut her down, then gives a recklessly dangerous order moments before being distracted by a new patient being brought in by Garibaldi. When he turns around, their patient is crashing and his stim spit-roasted brain has already forgotten what he said because he's horrified that these fucking simpletons would think he'd given an order to deflate the third lung to nine PSI. What asshole would say that? It's you, Stephen. You're the asshole. When Garibaldi dares to talk to him while he's trying to correct his mistake, he absolutely loses his fucking shit. And everyone looks extremely uncomfortable. When he tries to take the face-saving, huh, these idiots routine with Dr. Hobbs, she ruthlessly cuts him back down to size and asks him if he wants to check the receipts. Bless her. I fucking love Dr. Hobbs. Oh, in she's great. She's fantastic. The look on his face when she's like, no, man, fuck you. You want to go look at the tapes is priceless. I, I just, I think I watched it like three times just <laughs> to see his face when she's just like, fuck you. It's great. Uh, in Franklin's quarters, he's just hopping out of the shower when Garibaldi arrives. Uh, the suggestion that Garibaldi doesn't have a key to Fra Stephen's quarters is frankly ludicrous. But I suppose if you're going to confront your boyfriend over his drug abuse, it's polite to ring the doorbell first. He confronts Franklin, and when Franklin says he's headed back in to cover shifts since he can handle it, Garibaldi is like, babe, you cannot handle it. And Franklin says, excuse me, with exactly as much attitude as you can expect a motherfucker who is being called on their shit to throw out as chaff to try and avoid the fight they don't want to have. Franklin is defensive, but Garibaldi... Ever his best when the people he loves is great in this scene. He's exactly the right amount of firm, direct, pushing back and showing care, but also f not backing down. If this was the Garibaldi we got all the time, he'd be a fan favorite. And instead, it's a cabin in fascism. Anyway, Franklin is having none of it. 
it goes from intervention to fight and sounds more than a little like a breakup, which would be heartbreaking if it weren't Garibaldi and Franklin, two characters you sort of hate. And Garibaldi more or less says, what comes next is on you, motherfucker. I came to you first and leaves. From there, he goes to see Dr. Hobbs, who is doing paperwork on her break, proving that in the future, nothing has changed at all. He has checked the tapes and verified that she was right. Franklin fucked up, and the text barely saved his bacon from, from killing the patient. Again, presumably. Then he asks about routine blood work that every doctor who comes into contact with alien patients has to do. Hobbs very quickly figures out where he's going with this. Does the word privacy mean anything to you, Mr. Garibaldi? She asks. And he doesn't even bother to respond. Because of course it doesn't. It's Garibaldi. He says he doesn't want to go through official channels because that will bring others in. He's not remotely bothered about violating Franklin's privacy, just keeping it secret in case he's right, which will end Franklin's career. But Hobbes has actual ethics and tells him to get fucked. She won't help him, uh, she, but she will tell him where to look for the files if he gets actual permission to do it. Meanwhile, Franklin, ever the creeper, watches nearby. In MedLab, Garibaldi calls up the blood samples, but at the last second, he doesn't do it. In that moment, Franklin walks in and asks why. Uh, rather than turning it into a passionate confession of love and an embrace, they talk, which is much less interesting. It turns out Franklin ran the reports himself, and the numbers in the reports made it clear that he's addicted to stims. In MedLab after the Vorlon shit, Franklin has asked to see Sheridan. He's resigning from MedLab because he's a junkie. His speech is good. He looks bad, which is also entertaining. He says he has a lot to figure out, which is like a no shit moment. I should be enjoying this moment of humiliation more, but frankly, I'm just so done with Franklin in this episode. I'm just ready for him to go away. The episode ends with a reprise of Garibaldi's question, asking what happens after they put Kosh's belongings into his ship. Delenn's voice narrates, the ship, she says, was made for him. It has no purpose without him. It takes one last trip out of Babylon 5, and then dives into the nearby star. Bom, 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 bom. Rip, rip the ship. Yep. So, I want to I wanna applaud Dr. Lillian Hobbs for stepping off the set of, like, a real medical show with, like, with, like ethics, and walking yeah. into the Babylon 5 bed lab and being our fucking hero. Yeah. She's so she's, good. She's so good. I love this character. I love that they had the person who stands up to Franklin be a woman of color. Yeah, I was about to say that, that it was such a good choice to make her be a woman of color because, like, if you had somebody white calling Franklin out, it could look real bad. Yeah, and it's not the first time she's done it. Like, they've had Hobbs kind of being his foil for a little while now. I, and yeah. I think this is the first episode she's appeared in. No, it's the first episode she has a name in. Uh, yeah, she's named in this one, but she's been in a couple of previous ones uh, looking like, at him like he's a fucking bag of squirrel it's like nuts. like sidelines doctor number seven. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, this is the first one I think she has lines in. Yeah, other than like, doctor, are you sure? Or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but she's cool. I like how even like when Garibaldi's like, hey, give me these files. She's like, no, go through the pro proper fucking channels and do this like an adult. Yeah. 
She has great body language, too, in that conversation with Garibaldi, that she's so uncomfortable. But she's, like, she's super uncomfortable. She clearly, I think, feels pretty threatened by Garibaldi, but is holding her ground. Yeah. Everything about her in all these interactions with Franklin and with Garibaldi is, this is a woman, well, it's depressing because this is clearly a woman who is used to being around, uh, around men who think that they can just sort of like boss her around. Like she's used to standing up to authority figures and having to like stand her ground against them. And you see that with Franklin and you see that with Garibaldi where she's like stealing herself for this confrontation. That's pretty depressing, but I like her for it, that she doesn't back down. The actress is very good. I like her a lot. Have always liked the actor who plays Franklin. I think he does good work with Franklin. And I think he's particularly good in this episode where when he's confronted by Garibaldi and then in the scene where they, where he is confronted, where he finds Garibaldi not pulling up the records. Yeah. Like if, if this is, if that was the Franklin and Garibaldi that we got all the time, it'd be so much. So much better. Yeah. And I think I've made my stance clear that there, everything about this show, there is no doubt, there would be no downside to the two of them being a couple. I think that would improve everything about both of those characters. Um, but I just hate everything about the both of them. Yeah. All, like almost all the time. I do like how broken Franklin looks. I don't like his like the medicine just comes down to the number speech. I think oh you called God. that out too. Yeah, it's such an it's it's I, I'm what it sounds like is it's an avoidance tactic. Like yeah. that that I think that I think is much more. I, I think that is much more Franklin trying to rationalize or try to dismiss. See, yeah. I have a different take on that, which is that that's how Franklin practices medicine is by the numbers, and that's why he's a shitty doctor. Yeah, I I could very much see that that's how he practices medicine is very much like the the kind of like mechanical algorithmic intellectual side and not like we know that he has negative bedside manner. I was and, yeah gonna say the like, exact same. No thing. heart to him. Yeah, he's a cutter. He's not a he's not a a, a a doctor. He's a cutter. He's a surgeon. Right, and so I could absolutely see him practicing medicine that way and that's one of the things i hate about him yeah you would think i had more to say about franklin in this episode but you've heard everybody i mean my spiel about franklin is pretty established here i think the addiction storyline is good i think as a i don't know peak or bottom out of his addiction storyline it works I think it suffers for being in this episode where there's more interesting things going on. And I think the fact that he's such a such a butthole, it's it's very hard to have any empathy for Franklin. And that makes the the addiction storyline harder to work. There's some interesting lines from Franklin in here when he's talking to Sheridan um, as he's handing in his re- resignation, where he's talking about how he's like been super consumed by the job, etc. And that's super a thing in medicine. Yeah. I think that's a thing that I wish that they had done more with 
kind of on its own and had a better character or developed different aspects of the character or something. But that thing of like the the obsessiveness and like losing, not just losing yourself in the work, but like willfully losing yourself in the work mm-hmm. is really a thing that yeah. happens in medicine. I think Franklin's character, because he's not connected to the shadow plot line, he only gets the addiction plot line and he doesn't get a lot of time to do it. So there's not a lot of, there's not as much nuance to it mm-hmm. as maybe it could have had. And as a result, all you see is like, oh, Franklin's being a, di- a dickhole again. Must be the stims. And then Garibaldi confronts him. And then this is the time that it finally takes. Yeah. Um, and I think it's not ideal uh, as a way to try and tell that story. As a lighter Franklin thing, the man doesn't have time to sleep, but he has time to wax his chest. <laughs> Just saying. Well, I mean, maybe that's what Garibaldi likes. <laughs> now that Kat has validated my 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 fan theory about about Garibaldi and Franklin, I'm never going to stop with it. Something that I noticed this in this episode, and it will haunt me forever. But do the Med Lab jackets have breakaway sleeves? <laughs> They're like little button. I clasps. think they do. Um, that's not necessarily a bad idea. No, it's not. But I just like I wanted to call this out, like, and bring this into our conscious attention. But they're like little button clasps around yeah. like the arm, the arm sockets. So, well, I those guess... are that's their surgical gear too, specifically. Like, I I'm hope not so. Sure what that function? But, I'm not sure what that functionality is. Have you ever seen anybody use those breakaway pants? <laughs> I mean... You know, so that they can just be like. Boom! Surgery time. Bam! Bam! Well, but it's on the jacket, so it's like, what, 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 what purpose do sleeves have? Like breakaway sleeves. Well, maybe let, you got to do you surgery. Rip it off real fast if it got some sort of like really nasty contaminant on it. Fair. Or, okay. Or alternate suggestion: maybe you really need to show your guns to a sexy patient. <laughs> this is Doctor Franklin's med lab, after all. Maybe a sexy a sexy lady alien comes in and you gotta show her the guns, convince her to go back to your quarters for a little bit of uh one-on-one therapy. Con- convince her to go back to your quarters so you can show her your waxed chest. Yeah, well no. It's for when you have a heart bypass at three and a pickup game at five. <laughs> or or a uh a, a Baja blast sex party at five. I just need to bring that to everybody's attention because it's I think it's one of the weirder costuming things I've seen on the show, and that's saying something. Yeah. Yeah, in general, those are those are real weird fabrics, especially especially in the like semi HD on HBO. Like the the fabric yeah. the like loosely knit fabric on them looks so bizarre yeah it's like a waffle cut yeah like i feel like they were maybe going for some sort of like disposable gauze sort of thing but like it just isn't working let's move on from fucking franklin the a plot in this episode is cathartic yes and no mostly just because mostly just because somebody calls caution as bullshit yeah i do like that part i like Sheridan's little arc in this episode where he's you can see how 
desperate Sheridan is to help and how lost he is because he just has no fucking clue how to fight the shadows. And his speech with Kosh, where he's like, let me fight this my way. But he doesn't know how to do that. And he's like, are you on our side or not? Like, get off your butts, you know, do something. That whole piece is really good. And I really like that. It's interesting because the if you just look at the lines, they're so cheesy in that scene. Yeah. Like, you know, you you Vorlons have a saying, knowledge is a three-edged sword. Well, we humans have a saying, put your money where your mouth is. It's just, it, it shouldn't land, yeah. but it does. Yeah. Well, because, yeah, because the Vorlons are full of shit and <laughs> it, it works. I think, like, the reason it works is because it's, like, it's not trying to be clever. It, it's, it's Sheridan just being as upfront and, like, verbally violent with Kosh as possible. Also, Sheridan's got big dad energy, and that is absolutely something your dad says when he's yelling at you. But yeah, there's, um, it's a really good moment because it's just Sh- Sheridan just completely losing it. I think it's also like one of those things where it's like we've had a season and a half now of Kosh being like, we must prepare you. And <laughs> Sheridan is like, I've been preparing. I still have no clue. Which, honestly, John, huge mood. That was me entirely through college. Yeah. <laughs> I love the scene in the dream. I love that Kosh like slips into the persona of his dad. Oh, yeah. And I like that Kosh is so much more eloquent in that persona uh, mm-hmm. and is able to say the things he wasn't able to say before that way. Yeah. I still think he's full of shit, but I th- appreciate that he's better able to say the, th- the the bullshit he needs to say in that in that way. We talk a bunch about, you know, scenes having like utility or, you know, laying track for the future. And this is where we get the payoff from the scene with Sheridan talking to his father on the phone. Mm -hmm. And we had that like established chemistry and established relationship between the two of them. And now, now we're seeing it pay off because now we've got Kosh dad. But the same chemistry carries over. Yeah. I also really like that the way they intercut that fight scene, that scene where you have this very emotional conversation and then you have just these flashes reflected in discount Ross Geller's environment mask of the, the, the shadow soldier Foley and the flashing lights and all that stuff. A thought that just occurred to me, are the, are the shadow bugs in counter suits? Hmm. That, I, I, that's an interesting thought. I, makes sense. Because how do you. I thought that they were kind of insubstantial in the same way that the, the Vorlons are insubstantial. That was my question is how do you shank a bean of energy? If you're a big bug, how do you. Well, I think, I think they're. I think maybe the shadows are also kind of made of energy in a similar way, perhaps. It's a yeah, good question, know. though. Yeah. Their, their I, yeah. foley is so good, though. Yeah, yeah. that With, noise that they make is 
creepy as shit. Um, one thing I like I, with the shadows in this is I think this is the first time the shadows have really felt menacing. Yeah. Because, like, they've been powerful before. We get to see how big they are, how cool they are, like, that they can swipe through an enemy fleet. But I think that Season 3 has been doing them a little bit of an injustice, considering that, like, both times that the White Star encounters shadow vessels, it dispatches them. Granted, they have to be clever about it, but they're n- it never feels like they're really in peril. Or, like, there's no there's no, like, lingering threat after they dispatch those individual ships yeah and i mean like that's because sheridan is playing a smart war so far but between the londo scene in the hallway and that final and that scene in kasha quarters there's a menace there and there's a terror there that doesn't that i don't think that the show has been able to pull before with the shadows part of that is because i think that like we get to see the shadows fighting a war a battle in a very like define sense yeah but in this episode we just get to see that they will shank you in a hallway and like they will just stab you with a shiv and just twist it and i think that's something that like the show needed yeah Yeah. there hasn't been like i don't want to sound like i'm maybe degrading some of the stuff that we've seen in the show but there doesn't it's like we don't see consequences and like end goals of what the shadow or shadows are doing and having the major character death of kosh is a great way to hammer through the consequences mm-hmm. yeah 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 morden being intimidating discount ross Geller. and then and then john travolta saturday night uh poisoning adira yeah you know just like it's much more active and it's much more mean and personal yeah than just like a big uh, a big shadow ship like firing a laser even the petty thing of that he like bribes a security guard with a you know film camera film canister full of diamonds and then murders the guy and takes the diamonds back yeah it's so petty like i'm sure that he killed the guy to you know get rid of witnesses or whatever but like it also seems like you know i really wanted those diamonds so like fuck you yeah yeah poor guy he just wanted to you know finish that tattoo on his chest (laughs) wait wait are you talking about the end scene no at the beginning the uh the security guard that uh he brought yeah he was gonna he he was gonna give clark uh double ppg rifles to be firing in each hand and you know maybe uh cover up that bald spot with a flowing mullet i always wonder what would happen what would have happened in this episode if veer had told someone on the main staff that morton was on the station bad things probably it's amazing how different it could have played out if veer had been like hey ivanova so you know that john travolta looking motherfucker um, just saw him in the hall. Yeah, not good things. Speaking of Veer, the vendor that he's talking to, one, I agree with your note, Anna, <laughs> that Veer would look great in garters. Yeah, I don't know what the vendor is talking about. Like, don't don't shame Veer. Yeah. Uh, he is played by an actor named Jan Rabson. And 
I you have got to look at this guy's IMDb page. Oh my god, there's my so much god. stuff. He has voiced on goddamn everything. He has been working a lot since the early 80s and he's been on he as a voice actor, he has been crazy busy. He was he's been like a bit voice actor on Stuff like Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, Robotech, Alvin and the Chipmunks, Pirates of Dark Water. He's in Water. Akira. He's in Akira. Like, it's wild. Space Cats, James Bond Jr. Uh, he was Kerma on Ninja Turtles. God only knows who the fuck that is. <laughs> uh, he's additional voices on Street Fighter 2, the TV <laughs> series. But then he's also like in a bunch of actual TV series. But all of it's little stuff. Like he's never broken yeah. through to be like anybody. He's in like two episodes of the Bratz TV series from 2008 and with as a named character. But like almost all of his roles are like additional voice. Um, So it's wild that he is. He just has an, a crazy resume, but all, almost all of it is like bit bullshit. Okay, you missed the most important thing here because this is the worst part. He's the voice of Larry from Leisure Shoot Larry. Yes, I yes, he's the voice of Larry from Leisure Shoot Larry. So just oh, but it's yeah. like that's the that's the that's the one that is like jumped out at me. Unfortunately, I I do want to seriously talk about Londo here. Yeah, uh, you've got to note that you know the it's great. To see the like the, the swing from happiness to sorrow that we see mm-hmm. with Londo is great. It's really interesting because on the one hand, it should feel good to have Londo face some consequences for like all of the horrible things he's done, right? But it doesn't feel good because it's Adira getting harmed. And like Yeah, yeah I was gonna say he doesn't face consequences, Adira yeah. does. And then he's just sad about the, he's sad about the consequences she faces. And like you feel so bad for Adira, who like just wanted to you know go to the station and hang out in a swanky hotel room with her rich boyfriend. Yeah, it, it sucks, and it's like it, it's it's a really cutting move from Morden. Okay, I'm just like I'm looking at our time here. Do we want to go on a fr- do we want to go on a little mini thing about fridging? I don't have the energy for a fridging sidebar. Okay, I'm I'm gonna be like really quick on this, but I the like the reason she dies is for Londo's man pain, um, yeah. and and motivation, and it sucks. Um, and I wish that that had been executed through a different plot line, but it was the I, 90s. it's what we, yeah, it, it's what we get and. It sucks, especially like they don't even bring back the actress. Yeah. Yeah. There's like a mannequin in that body bag, I'm sure. And we do get a couple flashbacks, including one where Lana describes himself as a washed up old Republican, <laughs> which in season three is fucking hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That that's a wild reminisce to who Lana was in season one because he's he's come pretty far and not in a good way it's it's interesting so jude you highlighted that that it's bizarre that londo jumps 
immediately to thinking that Rifa did it. Yeah. Um, which I sort of agree with you and I sort of don't because I think that this is ties into what Justin was saying about the fact that the shadows have not at this point seemed particularly menacing. Interesting. That we've known that they were powerful, but I don't think that Londo has ever thought of Morden as somebody who would do something like this. He's just the one, he's just the the dude with the creepy ships. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but that's really valid. They've never been an active threat to him before. Right. And like, you know, it's one thing to be like, well, they're kind of shadily powerful and have a lot of military force and dubious motives. And it's another to be like, they murder people. Yeah, because it's like murder is the thing we've never seen out of them before. I'm sure that Lando knows other people who Rifa has murdered. <laughs> well, and and he did poison Rifa. Recently. And, yeah, pretty recently. And it's, I mean, I am sure that that's precisely why Morton chose that method of killing Adira. Yeah. To, to drag him across, to drag Rifa across Londo's path as a suspect. Oh, and I can't wait until the next time we see Rifa on this show. All right. So, listeners, we're here. This is our last episode before the Great Abyss. Join us next time for episodes 16 and 17 of season three. It is time for the podcast without end. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share alike no derivatives license. Yeah, instead of a washed up old Republican, now he's just a, an average member of the Republican Party. Ooh, how, okay, we have to end it there.